of the Survival Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, October the 19th, 2023. This is episode 3395, which means we will soon say goodbye to the episode range of the 3300s and move on to 3400. Today's an expert council Q&A show for this week. I've got some good stuff for you today. In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams will discuss Brandon's embarrassing trip to Israel. I'm the one calling them Brandon. They called him Biden. Uh, Chris Rossini will talk about how war and inflation are the destroyers of nations. As you might imagine, I'll probably have some things to add to that one myself. And then Dr. Ken Berry has a segment for you on the things you absolutely need to be doing If you're taking statin drugs, I think this one's really important. I know with an audience my size, there are many of you, just by the numbers, just by the aggregate average, that are taking statins. Um, And sometimes maybe you really are stuck taking them, at least for a time. You need to be doing it. There's some other things that you need to be doing to protect your health, uh, because statins do a variety of things to us. And so Ken has a great segment on that. Nicole, awesome socks, awesome sauce. We'll talk about uh, how to monitor your freezer so you don't lose food if something goes wrong. Tim, the tool man cook, has a segment called 15 Tips and Upgrades for an Extended Road Trip. He's been on the road for about 60 days right now, so he's had some time to think about it and try all these things out. Ben Falk has a segment on winter bed prep in cold climates. Sean Mills will talk about how to source DIY design components for your solar uh, power systems. And I have a question I'll handle on how you'd go about raising bluegill for food on your own property. This person has about two and a half acres. Unless I hear back while I'm putting all this show together, though, I don't know if they mean like me in tanks, because I have three acres and I have tanks, or they mean I'm willing to get a hold of an excavator and put some stuff in. There's two different ways to approach this based on that, and uh, I will uh, talk about both, and they both may end up actually being kind of similar in a way. With that, before we uh, get into it, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is the Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. John is a great dude. He's part of our community. He's a ham radio operator, he's a prepper, and he's a hell of an investment manager. I'll just say that. He knows what he's doing, he knows how to make money, he knows how to protect wealth, and he knows how to teach you how to grow your wealth like a garden. And every week he does a couple, three episodes of the Wealth Steading Podcast where you can learn exactly that, how to grow your wealth like a garden. Check him out at wealthsteading.com. Sponsor of the day number two today is Canine Academy with Joel Riles. You know, the most difficult thing any dog trainer ever has to train humans and canine academy it's yeah it's for your dog but it's really for you 
If you learn how to train your dog, then you can have perfectly trained dogs. You have to work on yourself first. Canine Academy will give you the core basics that everybody needs to have for their dog. They also have training programs that are monthly uh, subscription that keep going to higher and higher advanced levels. They have all types of options. Again, it's Canine Academy. I recommend you go to the survivalpodcast.com, though, and use their banner on my site or use the link in today's show notes uh, because I do have an agreement with Joel and I am paid on referrals uh, not a monthly fee like I do with pretty much all my other sponsors. Uh, I decided to do that to trial things for him to see if I can bring him enough business. I do hope I can because, guys, I'll just tell you, sponsors, I bring them to you as a service. Anybody I bring to you as a sponsor, I'm not doing it for money. I have people that would, are willing to pay me money to get rid of sponsors right now to take their place, to pay me you know, double or even triple what they're paying. I bring you the companies that I think you should be doing business with. And I think that there are a tremendous number of dog owners in this audience. And what Joel's put together with Canine Academy is pretty freaking awesome. So uh, definitely check it out. With that, let's go ahead and get into it today. We'll begin with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, talking about Brandon's embarrassing and awkward trip to Israel and hearing how war and inflation are the destroyers of nations. Yeah, nobody knows who bombed the hospital. It's the only Christian hospital in Gaza. Um, it, those scenes were horrific last night. Um, and I think, you know, people's minds were probably made up at, at the beginning. If they support one side or the other, they won't believe the other stories. So we, what we don't know when we won't know because propaganda takes over immediately. Um, and, and all sides use it in war. Um, but there are a couple of interesting things. The Israelis were caught um, editing some video. They put out some video proving that it was not them. And there's a little timestamp that they had actually made that video about 10 minutes after, 30 minutes after the attack. So they had edited some video doing that. They also released what they purported to be a phone call between two Hamas agents discussing the fact that it was their own bomb that hit it. And they were roasted on, the, on Twitter over that because they say, you have the technology to listen to two guys from Hamas talking about this bomb, but you couldn't detect a whole year of them planning this huge attack? You know, give me a break. So they really got roasted over that. So we don't know what happened with the horrific bomb, but it did, as you, as you say in your opener, it really did coalesce the entire, as if they needed another event. It coalesced in even somewhere like Jordan, where they try to be a close U.S. partner, and we'll talk about this later, their leadership had to react. So in the midst of all this horror, here's Biden saying, I'm going to go take a trip over there and solve the problems. <laughs> Put on this first clip because it is a disaster for him, I would say, and for his whole team. But, you know, with Netanyahu, what he needs, what he needed is full-throated support from the U.S. Back to old times again. We love you unconditionally. But it was a little weird. Now, here is them sitting next to each other. Maybe it's just me, but they look very awkward. If we can watch that next clip, they look very awkward. And Biden says something weird, which is not uncommon, <laughs> but it's even particularly weird. That second video clip was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there not sure. So we got a lot. We got to overcome a lot of things. That was strange, wasn't it? Based on what I've seen, and no one knows what it is, uh, but based on what I've seen, it looks like it was done by the other team, which is a weird way of saying things. 
But then, so this is not the full-throated support, because then he goes on to say, well, there's a lot of people out there who are not sure. He doesn't <laughs> say they're wrong, or they're stupid, or they're evil. He just said there's a lot of people who don't believe this, but i got to say it, so I'm going to say it at least. But the one thing is, there's more and more Americans are starting to wake up about this funding for everybody, and especially uh, mixing it up now to get uh, the money to Israel as well as Ukraine yeah. when they don't have any money in the bank. Yeah. And I, I think it doesn't take a genius to, to figure that out. Um, not only are we trying to go to war with the entire Muslim <laughs> world uh, to no benefit of ours, but we're going to, as you stated in your opening, we're going to tax the heck out of the American people to do it. And this is from Politico, this next clip. Biden expected to ask Congress for a $100 billion package that includes aid for Israel and Ukraine. We can fund it all. Remember what Janet Yellen says? We can afford two wars at once. We can afford this. And who's this we, Janet? You know, I mean, it's crazy. You know, and most of that $100 billion could be traced back to a problem. We can't deny the problem. But it's a problem that we participated in creating. Over, And our nation, unfortunately, succumbed to the lore of empire. And, you know, we have to go back to basics. And it's sad that I even have to point this out. But that's the way it is. You know, the purpose of the U.S. military is to defend America. You know, anybody could go get a map out, look at America. That's what the military is for, to defend that part of the world and the people in it. But that's, you know, that went uh, out the door a while ago. And they decided to intervene in conflicts all over the world all the time. And once you start doing that, it's the rest of the world becomes much more important than that place on the map at home. You know, and we just talked about this week, Dr. Paul and Daniel, they're now sending money to Ukraine, to Israel, and to Taiwan all at the same time. Meanwhile, here at home, everything is seemingly falling apart with people on the streets, with our infrastructure, with, uh, you know, our borders. We could list the stuff all day. And this is what happens. And as the world slips out of their fingers, as it must, because you can't conquer the world, they start to resent us here at home. You start to feel like, you know, they don't really care about us here. And when you look at the border, you, how do you not come to that conclusion? As American citizens, our job is to keep our government, our government, in check. Just like it's our government's job to protect this land, our job is to keep them from going everywhere else. But they, they, they know how to get you out of that by, oh, look, Ukraine, Russia. Pick which one are you, which side are you on? No, we're we're on the side of you stay right here. You know, it's not your job to go out there. And then they'll go to the next one. Iran uh, or not? Yeah, Iran, Israel, Gaza. Go ahead, pick. And then they'll show you all the images and stuff. And it's not our job to pick. We are Americans. We have to keep our government in check because once they go out there, they're going to bankrupt us and they're going to mess things up out there, which they've done. You know, over and over and over and over. How many times do they have to do it? So we have to break out of this empire mentality, not just the politicians, the American people. You know, even the MAGA people, we thought that they were America first. They're now gone. So we have a big job ahead of us, the people that want true America first, non-intervention overseas, and then limit government as far as possible here at home. So before I... Uh I dogpile on Biden a little bit here, and I'm gonna, and bring up some other things too. I want to point out that I can be fair and even-handed, and I try to be at all times. So 
I had heard that Biden said in a speech while in Israel that he was born in Israel. And this is like, you know, one of those things that you think is pretty probable based on some of the things that this lunatic has said and claimed over the years. He was raised in the black churches and he was raised by Puerto Ricans. And I mean, and these are things he did say. So I was going to find that clip and append it here and use it for some humor today. And when I really, really listened to it, he was talking about why Israel was born. And I think that he, you know, blothered like he usually does. But he was saying that's why it was born or Israel was born. Like that's what he was actually saying in that. I just thought I'd bring that up because every time I jump on a politician of one side or the other, I get accused of just being a shill for the other side. So there you go. I just defended Biden in a place and time where he's probably more uh, undefendable than any other time in American history. The dude has clearly lost it. Um, and that's a concern. And if you wait, this is a survival topic, because when the President of the United States has dementia, all of our survival is at risk. I want to talk a little bit about this hospital in, uh, in the Gaza Strip. And I'm not going to be one of these idiots that claims to know for a fact who did what where. I've seen several different pieces of video footage on it, uh, and it appears that the detonation exceeds what is typical of a Hamas rocket. It doesn't mean that all that, that everything they have, that's what they have. Um, it also is possible, given there were rockets being set off at that point, that they're potentially one of the uh, air defense artillery uh, weapons from Israel maybe took this took out one of their rockets that fell or itself it missed. This has happened several times in Ukraine where Ukraine has claimed, look, the Russians did this horrible thing, and it turned out it was one of our own air defense systems that did the damage because occasionally they actually miss. They're very good, but it, so who knows? But this is what I really want to point out. The first casualty of, uh, of war is truth, always. It looks like now there was no hospital hit, not directly anyway, and there was not 500 dead people in this hospital. That the number of victims was in the dozens, and that the, the, the impact was actually in the parking lot of the hospital. It's still horrible. I'm just pointing out something here. In all of this, please stop believing anything that you hear on its face. Okay, I'm not saying it's all lies. I'm saying there will be lies from both sides ongoing on a regular basis. And you cannot start getting emotional and basing what you are, are willing to commit our own nation to uh, in the name of defense or whatever. Based on this emotion, you cannot trust these people. Um, in 1990, I was a young man who had just joined the Army. And we all thought... The Desert Storm was going to be a much longer endeavor than it was and, and, and put way more American uh, lives at risk than it did. And we were being fed information and training about it because we were going to go, right? I mean, it was just, it was, it was understood like this is the biggest mobilization ever. As soon as you're out of your, your school, you're going to freaking desert, okay? You're going to go. And so they wanted us, especially in basic, they wanted us wound up, you know? So I remember hearing a story while I was in training that many Americans heard, heard, thousands, millions of Americans heard, that the Iraqis 
were throwing baby Kuwaitis out of incubators and taking the incubators, and the babies were dying in the street. You might imagine as a 17-year-old kid, 18-year-old kid, I was pretty pissed. I was ready to kill somebody over it. It turned out the whole thing was a lie. This thing about the beheaded children, for instance, in uh, the Hamas did, 40 babies beheaded. I, I, I'm sure plenty of children were killed. This may ha it may have happened. I will not accept it without some level of proof. And Biden has already, uh, his, his people have already retracted, uh, claimed that he saw footage of it or he saw evidence of it. All they have is reports. Again, if you want me to pick a side in this from a standpoint of, like, who do I think should win? Who do I want to win? Unlike Russia, Ukraine, where I'm like, I don't give a square root of F all who wins. It's between them. I, I can tell you right now what Hamas has done is reprehensible beyond words, and it is going to call down tremendous wrath. But I have I am not willing to get involved in this. I, Israel, this whole thing, we need to give Israel $100 million or whatever. Israel gets something like 2 to $3 billion a year like on auto draft from the United States. Okay? They, they get billions of dollars from us every year no matter what. Israel can defend itself. We don't need to be involved. But yeah, I'll say one side is worse than the other, though I'm not saying either side is good here. Yeah? But don't be led headlong into a war again. The last time a catastrophic event got in people's emotions and made them back a war was, for us, was 9-11 in the year 2001. And it resulted in a complete devastation and erosion of our own personal freedoms and liberties, Spending of close to a trillion dollars on two wars that we could not afford or win. We made everything in those two countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, worse than it was before we touched it. And we got nothing for it except dead Americans, tremendous numbers of dead civilians on the other side, a whole generation of young men who are messed up in the head, even if they're not physically messed up, and several you know, thousands of Americans dead. That's what we got. Maybe we should stop touching stuff in a place where we have a track record of making it worse every time we touch it. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying here. We don't need another war. And Janet Yellen saying stupid shit like, and she didn't just say we can afford two wars. She said we absolutely can afford two wars. Bitch, you can't pay the interest on our own debt, and your people in your country that you're supposed to be serving can't afford fucking food. Bitch, we can't afford any more of this. Yes, war, foreign wars in particular, along with debt, are the destroyers of nations. Chris is exactly correct when he says that. Crack a fucking economics book, right? You're the head of the SEC. You don't have a freaking clue about economics 101, and while you're at it, crack a damn history book. Let's take something else. Ken Berry on what to do if you're taking statins. This was a public service announcement for anyone who's stuck taking a statin drug. Many people are stuck taking these for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you've already had a heart attack or a stent or a bypass, and therefore you're taking a statin for secondary prevention. Some people are taking a statin because their doctor kind of bullied them into taking it. Some people take a statin because their wife encouraged them strongly to do what the doctor said. In some cases, it's your mama. In some cases, you just don't know better and you wind up taking a statin. In many cases, this is not doing you any good, but it can do 
potential harm in seven different ways. And in this video, I'm going to tell you the seven things you need to be thinking about and working on if you're stuck taking a statin. I'm Dr. Ken Berry, a family physician with over 20 years of clinical practice. Let's look at this list and I'll tell you what you need to do about each one of them. Number one is vitamin D. Taking statins decreases your body's ability to synthesize vitamin D. And so you need to really think about either eating vitamin D rich foods, which I have a video about on this channel, or taking a vitamin D3 supplement that does not come in a vegetable seed oil. Number two is vitamin K2. Again, uh, taking a statin interferes with your body's ability to make vitamin K2, which is different from vitamin K1. So either eat from the list of vitamin K2 rich foods uh, that I talk about in my video about that, or consider taking a vitamin K2 supplement. Number three, very important. It's been shown without any doubt that taking a statin causes your levels of coenzyme Q10 to plummet. So for every single human on the planet who's taking a statin on a daily basis, you need to be taking a coenzyme Q10 supplement. I encourage every doctor and healthcare provider to go through your list of patients taking a statin and call them and say, hey, why don't you take 200 milligrams of coenzyme Q10 a day because the statin that you're taking to try and prevent a heart attack is preventing your body from having the, the correct level of CoQ10 in your bloodstream. Next is cataracts. So some research shows that statins can actually cause the formation of cataracts. Other research shows that statins may prevent against the formation of cataracts. Now, at first you're like, how, does it, how is it both ways? Well, many of these studies were funded by the drug company that stands to profit billions from selling the statin. So I'll let you figure out what's going on there. But in the meantime, if you're stuck taking a statin, make sure and go see your eye doctor at least once a year and get a good eye exam to make sure you're not developing cataracts or that your cataracts are worsening. Next is hyperinsulinemia. It's been shown in research that when you take a daily statin, your levels of insulin in your bloodstream are going to be higher. And this can lead to a whole host of maladies, none of which you want. And so you may have to adjust your diet uh, in a way that I talk about in other videos on this channel to keep your insulin level from getting too high while taking a statin. Number six is hyperglycemia. Statins will absolutely make your blood sugar go up to some degree. Some people a little bit, other people a lot of bit. So you may have to, again, adjust your diet to eat a lower carbohydrate diet to keep your blood sugar within normal levels if you're stuck taking a statin. And then number seven, testosterone. If you're taking a daily statin, whether you're a man or a woman, it is going to lower your level of total testosterone in your bloodstream. And you need to monitor this. And if it gets low enough to be dangerous, then you need to consider a bioidentical testosterone replacement therapy. Testosterone benefits your body in hundreds, if not thousands of ways. And taking a statin can lower it to levels where you lose this benefit. So these are the seven things. If you know anybody taking a statin, 
please consider sharing this video with them because it could improve the quality of their life drastically. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. Since I'm a little bit riled up today, let, let's go ahead and talk about another one of my frustrations, doctors here. Um, first of all, excellent advice from Ken. When I found this, I was like, I've got to play this for you guys because this I, I know there's probably 10%, 20% of this audience uh, taking statin drugs that need to hear this, and you probably won't for your doctor, and that brings me to my problem. We have doctors all over this country, and all over the world, frankly, who are led by drug representatives and have degrees in medicine but almost no knowledge of nutrition at all, all over the country prescribing all these medications. And as long as it's in the book and it says you can prescribe this medication, whatever the book says at a surface level, as far as contraindications, if they get that far, is enough. I don't think most doctors would even be able to tell you what Ken did if you asked them. If you asked them what happens to a person's testosterone levels when they take statins, they would probably tell you nothing, even though they absolutely do not know. If you asked them if there was any need to supplement COQ10, right, that's coenzyme Q10, then when you're taking statins, they'd say no, or they wouldn't know. And this is why Ken's book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, is so important. And I remember the first time I had Ken on this show. It had to be eight years ago-ish, anyway. And he had just released the book. Lies my doctor told me. And I remember asking him in that interview, is lie too strong a word? Because if somebody doesn't know a thing, so they don't tell you it, or they believe a thing, so they tell you it, are they really lying? In other words, if I really believed that I was going to do a show tomorrow, by the way, I'm not. Let's say I really believed I was going to do a show tomorrow. And so I said, I'll see you tomorrow with another show. And then something came up, and I put an announcement and said, hey, guys, I couldn't do the show because, you know, something happened. You would say, oh, he didn't lie. He was wrong, right? Something happened that he didn't foresee. He was wrong. Or if I tell you I'm going to be on the air on a particular date, and I've already committed to something else, and I messed up, I was wrong. I didn't lie. Ken pushed back on that, and this is what he said. Jack, they're doctors. You're going to them and paying for them to look at you, evaluate your health, test your health, give you drugs, tell you what to take and what not to take. They have a responsibility to know the words that are coming out of their mouth are accurate. And that means when they're inaccurate, they're lying because they have every bit of capability to know whether they're telling you the truth or not. And they're just too damn lazy or too damn tied up with other things to do it. I have come over to the Kenberry School of Thought. I think if you're a doctor and you're prescribing medication, especially medication that a person is going to take for the rest of their life or for a significant period of time, you need to take five fucking minutes, doctors, to actually do a deep dive into things beyond what the freaking things that the drug rep, the pretty little chick who brought your staff donuts and shook her ass in front of your face or whatever it is, brought you with the medication sample she gave you when you started prescribing it all those years again. You have a responsibility to your patients to know things like Ken just told you here, and I will also tell you this. If you listen to this show and you are a doctor, 
Don't even take Ken's word for it. Go out and research what he just told you, and then you'll confirm for yourself it's true. You'll start to realize what you don't know, and at that point, if you don't notify, as he suggested, every one of your patients about what they should be doing to protect themselves while they're taking this medication because you told them to take it, it may not be legally the case that you're guilty of the word I'm about to use, but in my opinion, you are guilty of mal-fucking practice. There, I put the F word in the middle of it, so it's not a legal word. It's an ethical word. You're guilty of malpractice if you give a person a substance. Tell them to take it. They trust it because if you're fucking white coat, okay? That's why they trust it, and you don't give them all the information that they should have when they're taking that drug. If that's too harsh for you, find another effing podcast. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. Anyway, with that, let's go on and listen to something else. This is a little bit less blood pressure raising, though it can raise your blood pressure if you don't have it. Having lost freezers in the past, I can tell you it's a bad thing. The smell that comes out of them, I lost one where there wasn't really much I could do. We were out of town. It was 100 degrees out, and it was in a garage. It was worse than anything I've ever smelled from death. I guess it was just bad. And so we want to know if something's going wrong so we can take corrective action. Nicole has a particular product she recommends for that. Someone asked about it. She was good enough to record a piece for us. Hey, TSP World. Nicole Sauce here from NicoleSauce.com and the Living Free in Tennessee podcast. I've got a question in from JT, Jerry. (laughs) Anyway, the question is, can you recommend a good freezer alarm? I need three. Details. A few episodes back, you had the same conversation with Nicole Sauce, and I can't remember which episode or which alarm she recommended. I'm not going to go into all the details that Jesse said, but let's just say there are free three freezers that need a probe. And it's a super easy answer. I use the YoLink temperature probe. They make two. One is intended for inside use, and you can get a package of two of those plus the hub. You need the hub too for about 60 bucks on Amazon. I've sent the link to Jack. Or you can get one that's rated for outside that is more waterproof. And that one's about 50 bucks a probe. So what I did is I got the, the three package plus the one outside one. And the outside one will last longer. Those ones that are intended for inside use and not having like humidity and that sort of thing. I expect them to break eventually, but they let you know when they break. So that's kind of cool. Anyway, in order for these to work, you need to hook them up to the internet. So there's an app on your phone that you hook that up with. And then they just keep track of the temperature in your freezer. You can set it to notify you via text message, via a notification on your phone or send an email or all of those things if it goes over a certain temperature. So I've sent mine to tell me if it gets above 20 degrees so I still have time to deal with stuff if that happens. Now I have had these in my freezer for a full year now. I've changed the batteries on them one time. In that time they take AAA batteries so super easy to do. And my outside probe has not needed a battery in the year. So the inside probes have. So if you get the inside ones, they will need batteries more. And eventually they're just going to wear out and that's okay. For me, it worked out really well to get, because I also needed three probes, to get the the inside combo with the hub 
plus the outside one. And eventually when the inside ones tell me they're done, then I will replace them with outside ones. That's that's my long-term plan for that. But what it does is at any time I can look at the app and see the temperature of my freezers. That's pretty cool. When I had a weird negative five degree freakish Tennessee weather event last year, I took them out of my freezer and put one in my pump house and it let me know if my pump house, I changed the settings, let me know if my pump house got below 35 degrees so I could know if, if I was in danger of freezing pipes. So there's, there's some flexibility that came with having these, but it is well worth a hundred or 150 or 200 bucks in probes and setting that whole system up for yourself to know what has happened with your freezers and to, to keep from losing thousands of dollars of meat if you have three chest freezers full of meat. Here's the other thing. So somebody told me they didn't like the Yolink because if the power goes out, then you don't know what's going on. The thing is, if the power goes out, then I know I need to deal with it. And if the internet stops working, i.e. the power goes out and there's no internet and I'm not home, I actually do get a notice that my freezers are not online and I can reach out to the house or to the house sitter and say, hey, is power out in the area or is it just an internet outage? So for me, this has worked the best out of every anything I've ever used. And the fact that I have the flexibility to get a text message, an email, or just a notification on my phone, that has made it so I can set it up how I want it, when I want it. So I hope this helps you. I have sent links to both the Trio package with the two indoor temperature sensor probes and the hub, as well as the you can buy a single more durable outdoor rated probe to Jack. Hey guys, by the way, speaking of Jack, Jack and I worked together a number of years ago to set up a really cool custom coffee that is particular to him. And what we did is we tested a number of beans and I used a method I'd learned about from Vietnam where they cool the coffee beans faster by using vodka. And as we got to talking, we were like, well, what happens if we use bourbon? So Jack's bourbon cooled Sumatran, which the faster cooling from the alcohol allows the sugars to develop. That is only seasonally available and it's only available as long as I have beans. So if you head over to hollerroast.com right now, you can get Jack's bourbon cooled Sumatran, but they are flying off the shelf. So I recommend you do that now. And don't forget, if you are a, an MSB member, you get a discount on that. So use it. Make it a great week. So Nicole sent me two links along with that segment. I do have them in today's show notes. Uh, 3395 is the episode. If you're listening sometime distant in the future, you can look up on the site. Uh, right under the bullet point for her segment, you'll see two separate links where you can get those items. I've done the same thing for the next segment because Tim Toolman Cook has 15 tips to make your road trip life a little bit better and upgraded. And he had three items he recommends in here, and I'll just say now I've got all of those listed for you below his bullet point as well. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Doing another segment for the expert council, so let's dive right in. I am currently in Rapid City, South Dakota, on day 35 of what turned out to be a 37-day epic road trip. 
and Jack was looking for content, and I thought, what better segment to do for you than to send you and let you know some of the upgrades and tips that I've picked up on this five-plus week road trip. So I'm going to share with you some upgrades I did to my Ram 1500 for this trip that I've learned from previous trips. Hopefully somebody out there will learn something. If you get any suggestions at other things I can do, throw them back at Jack, or if you have follow-up questions, throw them at him and I'll answer them for you. So the very first thing I did, based on a recommendation from Chris Dixon in the workshop Telegram group, was to get a full-size spare. Surprisingly, with that great big truck, all I had was a donut-sized wheelbarrow spare underneath, and the last thing I wanted was to be stuck on the side of the highway, limping along, having to find a tire repair shop when it would be just as simple to put a full-size spare on. So with that and a tire plug kit and a compressor in the back, hopefully, unless, you know, I blow all four tires, I should be good to go for a while. Also, I installed a locking rigid tonneau cover, box cover on the back. It's a trifold so that nobody can get into anything when I'm in the hotel if it's locked at night. That was good enough, but then I decided to install a ultra-thin 50-watt solar panel on top, run the wires down underneath, and I had a 500-watt solar power station that I would use at each of the events I went to while I was camping. And I would just let it trickle charge. And when I drove, of course, it wasn't ideal because it was behind the cab of the truck. But it would take two days of driving and that would charge up the 500 watt panel completely. Something else I picked up this time, I'll try to find a link. It actually came from a Canadian store, was a truck box tent. This thing was awesome. It gets you up off the ground. It puts you in the box of the truck, which gives you some added insulation so the wind stays off you more. It was tall enough that I could stand up in and stretch out in without my legs being bunched up. Honestly, this was a game changer. Never really liked staying in tents. This made it quite a bit better. Uh, I picked up a cup holder, a cup holder phone holder from the Love's Truck Stop. This thing's awesome, so you don't lose an existing cup holder, and it brings your phone up and close to you so that you can glance over at it while driving with GPS. If I can find an Amazon link that's similar, I'll post it. If not, you can get one of those at the Love's Truck Stop. Next, I got a behind-the-driver-seat organizer. It has molly webbing on it and a bunch of different kind of zip-up packages. In one of them, I put my compressor. In another one, I put my uh, battery booster pack. another one, I put my tire repair kit. And, of course, don't forget the key to the locking lug nuts on the tire itself, as well as a first-aid kit. Next, here's something for the hotel that, uh, because I wanted to make sure I was set up for this basically five-week road trip. Number one, get yourself a roll of quarters. If you're going to be staying at hotels a lot, keep a roll of quarters in your go bag. Not to call someone who cares, but to do laundry on the road, because nobody wants to take five weeks worth of laundry with them. And to bring down space and to make it smaller... I used to carry liquid laundry detergent in an empty water bottle. Now I just put a few pods in a Ziploc bag and some dryer sheets, and I've been good to go for five weeks. The next thing that has been an absolute game changer for me, I used it at every event, is a very tiny rechargeable USB-C white noise machine. This thing is awesome. No matter where I tented, no matter how noisy it got, just turn that thing on and blocks out absolutely everything. The one I have, I got on Amazon, USB-C rechargeable. I ran it for four nights in a row 
on the same charge. Never had to charge it. Absolutely beautiful. Especially if you get tinnitus or ringing in your ears, this thing works. Next, if you're going to travel a lot and you like a specific truck stop, look for the app. I have the Loves Truck Stop app. Every single time I fill up, it saves me 10 cents a gallon. No problem with that at all. Something else that should be simple, should be something you think about, or at least uh, something should go without saying, but charge your USB items while you're driving. Just bring everything, you know, if you're using uh, power bricks or anything like that at night to charge in the hotel, and you're generating electricity while you drive, then why not charge everything up while you're on the road, so you don't have to think about it when you get to the hotel or where you're going that night. Finally... Uh, Four things to make the most out of your hotel stay. Before you leave in the morning, make sure you have yourself a refillable coffee mug and fill that sucker to the brim. Last thing you need to do is buy another cup of coffee on the road. Fill your cooler with ice. (laughs) Again, this should go without saying, but I got myself some big uh, zipper-style Ziploc bags, and I would fill them full of ice and then put them in my cooler couple of days ahead of time to get it nice and cool and then the day before I would leave I would put fresh ice in a couple of the bags and it would help me get through uh, with a Yeti cooler four and five days of refrigeration temperatures. Also if you've been on the road for a few days hotels don't mind if you use their dumpster just ask they'll give you garbage bags they'll tell you where to throw it for me it was just always staying on top of the organization when traveling on the road And yeah, just take a minute and clean up every day when you stop or every time you stop for gas. And if you need to print, don't forget that almost all hotels have business centers with printers. I find the printers are hit and miss. I'd say about two-thirds of them have worked for the last year or two that I've gone to. But if they happen to have one that doesn't work, you can always ask them at the front desk. And in a couple of uh, instances, I've been able to email things to them, and then they've printed them off for me. So I hope you enjoyed this quick, very quick look into what ended up being a 37-day long road trip. I'm looking to break my record next year and go for even longer. Five events in five weeks. It was a great time. And if you want to know more about what I'm up to, uh, go by, well, you can search in your podcast feed for Workshop Radio, search in YouTube for Toolman Tim's Workshop or just go to toolmantim.co and follow up with me. And of course, if you have any questions for Jack, or for me, send them to Jack and he'll send them along to me. Things like entrepreneurship, backup power, killing the poverty mindset, traveling, the works. So with that, guys, I appreciate you. And as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So as I listened to that, I ended up adding two things uh, underneath Tim's bullet point to the three things he mentioned, which was the cup holder, the white noise machine, and the car seat organizer. I think those are all great recommendations. Uh, One, when he was talking about laundry, last year at Exit and Build, uh, John put uh, myself and, and, and Nicole Sauce and some other folks up in an Airbnb for our lodging. Really like the lady that runs that place. It's like the third or fourth time we've stayed in that same place. And I noticed the last time we were there when I went to do my laundry, she always has like uh, earth-friendly laundry detergent and stuff like that because she's on a septic like we are. She had these things that look like dryer sheets that are actually detergent. Now, I will tell you that it says to use one, and I have found that you get much better results as far as cleanliness when you use two of them. 
uh, but they are still infinite. I should put these on on um, on uh, T spaz honestly, and I haven't yet. They are infinitely less expensive than buying regular detergent, even if you're using two at a time. Number one, number two, they are non bulky. So if you buy your laundry detergent on Amazon, and some of you do, uh, make sure you use T spaz, and I appreciate it when you do. But um, when they say free shipping on things. Let's be honest, we all know that they've blended shipping into the cost. And when something's heavy and bulky, there's cost. And it's also wasteful, these big giant plastic things and all the stuff that goes in it. And you're paying mostly for water. That's why many people have gone to the pods. These are even better than the pods. Pods break and get goo all over the place. You can put 20, 30, 40, 50 of these in a bag and throw them in your go kit or whatever, and you'll always have laundry detergent with you. Uh, you could certainly cut pieces of them and use them to make detergent for hand washing things as well. Okay, You could just throw the whole box in there. They don't take up any space, and they last a long damn time. So uh, rather than carrying pods with you, I'd recommend you check these out. Get a package of them, trial them in your own home, and if you like them, you might find yourself just switching to them. Uh, next up, when he mentioned pa pa uh, charging stuff in your car, totally agree, but I'm going to tell you something. Um, most people, the, the, the standard USB thing in their car, when you plug into it, you're hooking your phone up to your radio, and so you hook your stuff up, and you have your Van Morrison channel playing, and your wife gets in there and hooks her phone up, and her phone takes over for your phone, and then you argue with each other, ask me how I know. What I did in my Challenger, I have a USB port on the dashboard, and that USB port on the dashboard is there's two ports there, and they will attach to the radio. I've put one USB uh, to lightning cable cord on that, and then I have a USB C and a second lightning cable. They are plugged into a little anchor two-port USB power plug, so it pops into your cigarette lighter style, 12-volt plug. In my particular instance, that is inside my console. So I plug it in there, put the two cords in it, wrap up the, the USB-C one, because that's kind of like, if we need it, have other cords in the console in case some device needs char charging that doesn't use USB-C or lightning, and then I have the second lightning cable in a different color, and it comes out of my console. That's the one for my wife to plug into. And when we're in the truck, it's her truck, it's usually her phone, it's her music, or whatever we're going to listen to. I have the exact opposite setup so that I can plug in and not interfere. And that way all the devices are chargeable. You've got more uh, ports than you need. Uh, you can do anything you want. And that little, beautiful little aluminum-bodied Way better than the crappy ones you buy at the checkout, in line, or at the airport store, or whatever, is nine bucks. So I have a link to that as well. I really recommend those two additions to a fantastic segment from Tim. Next up, let's hear about winter garden bed prep from Ben Falk, specifically someone in a very cold climate, USDA Zone 4, uh, southern Vermont in the Mad River Valley. Hey, back in all, Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Um, some content in general, Jack had asked for, and uh, one of the things I think is useful is just sharing about what's happening right now on the homestead and farm, and um, some of the things that might be helpful for you guys out there. Probably one of the primary ones is covering your garden. 
you know, so many people, and I've done it, and I still do sometimes when I don't have the time or just am busy with other things, but making sure you cover every single bit of your growing surface in your vegetable garden, whether it's with a tarp, you know, heavy tarp, like a rubber membrane, ideally, or, you know, woven, like a woven textile, or better than a tarp is, is the right types of mulch. Now, I wouldn't put sawdust in a garden. I've always regretted whenever I've done that. In paths, sometimes it can be okay. I wouldn't put wood chips in beds. Love wood chips in garden paths. But my favorite mulch for on top of a veggie garden in the winter is leaves and uh, grass clippings. I bought a, a bagger for my mower, which I needed to kind of mow some paths anyway, and so it was easier to justify doing that if I was at least collecting the organic matter. And that makes an incredible mulch if you mow like grass and get leaves at the same time. And it's like mixed leaf clippings, chopped up leaves, grass clippings, like a bunch of nitrogen, bunch of carbon. There's air in there more than just grass clippings. I mean, grass clippings work and they form a nice mat, but they're also, they get a little anoxic under there if they're pretty thick. Um, if you don't cover your garden, you're going to lose soil you're going to get weed seeds throughout there. Um, you're just going to have a lot more weeds come spring. Then if you cover it, you rake the mulch back into the paths, you have a perfect germination surface ready to go. Um, you can put compost down first or in the spring. I like to do it in the spring. Um, you know, Obviously, this goes for people who, who aren't growing in the winter. You know, If you're in a really mild climate, different, different deal. But really, just take the time to cover your garden now. It will save you 5x the amount of time in the spring. By early June, which sometimes we don't put stuff in until early June in some beds, you know, you have dandelions coming up like crazy, and you have a serious weeding job, which is destructive to the soil, and it's a ton of work, and you never really get, any, get all of them when things get really weedy. And if the beds that are covered have, have zero you know, zero minutes of weeding, basically. And you're building soil. Like, all that organic matter is just going in the right direction, which is into soil, into food, into you. So take the time to rake leaves, mow up leaves, grass clippings, um, whatever it is. I mean, those are the primary ones. Leaves alone are great. Uh, we just put our garlic in, did a mix of leaves, leaves and grass clippings. I'll often just do chopped leaves on garlic. But it's nice to have a little nitrogen from the grass clippings. Um, I put down a little bit of kelp meal, ch dried chicken manure that I made before that mulch this year to just give that garlic a little bit of an early amp. It helps a lot to have that nitrogen for the winter when it's actually growing its roots in late fall and especially in early spring. Um, yeah, that's I'd say that's the big one. I'm also, you know, putting up hay and storing hay and, and getting the cows ready. We've got a few cows last bunch of years. Um, you know, this is when we're just getting ready, getting the bees buttoned up, um, wrapped, getting the hives wrapped, and uh, making a lot of apple cider. We're having a huge apple year, and so I'm trying to put up 30 to 40 gallons of cider. I'm just going to assume there's no apple year next year. 
it's amazing we have a, such a big a, a apple crop because we had like May 19th, I think it was, we had 19 degrees, low 20s all over Vermont. Uh, and so there shouldn't be any apples. I mean, according to the literature out there, you lose like 90% of the crop at 25 degrees and like 99%, somewhere like 23. And we were below that and we have huge, you know, there's tens of thousands of pounds of apples just in my extended neighborhood right now. It's incredible. Um, so if you're in New England, in a place in New England where there's a lot of apples, I know some of New England has some decent apples, make some cider. Or if you're in a place where there's apples, um, we just do a lot of hard cider and six and a half gallon carboys. It can be really, really good within like six months which we make mead, but that takes really, you want to give it two years to, to have a good mead. Um, so you got to be patient with that. So the cider's a nice interim. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the big things right now. Our tree, tree crops really don't have any work to do before winter. It's nice to give some young, young trees some mulch. Now you can always mulch if you don't know what to do. But uh, good luck to everyone. I hope you're all doing well. Um, in these crazy times, getting ready for winter if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. See ya. I uh, completely agree with just about everything Ben said. Where The only place I would disagree is I have no issues using wood chips. I think wood chips are a fantastic mulch. Uh, maybe I feel that way because I have so many of them. I don't know. The one thing I will say with wood chips, if you're doing a cover crop uh, for for the winter... And you're using wood chips as a final uh, mulch. You want to do them thin for that purpose because you're putting seed down. And you want to leave enough for them to get up through. And you want to use a significant amount of either compost or mulch like Ben talked below that level uh, as well. So I think the... Uh, the grass and the leaves is a fantastic mulch. I totally agree with that. I recently did an entire episode on this subject, and I will put a link under Ben's segment to that episode. I don't remember what number it is, but I'll look it up now. As we listen to the next one, as Sean Mills lays out for us how to spec out and source parts for our own solar uh, energy systems. Hey everybody, it's Sean Mills with Hack My Homestead, and today I've got a question from Larry. Larry says... Where to look for value for a DIY solar system versus an all-inclusive package? Details. Hi, Sean. I am a moderately skilled DIYer tackling all sorts of electrical work. I've heard you and Jack talk about the value of a solar panel system and that you can almost always find a better value buying individual components of the system. I've looked quite a bit and can't seem to find a better value than link withheld <laughs> and can't seem to uh, find a better overall price for well-supported components. Do you have any recommendations on where else to look besides a company like this to save on a medium-sized system or any tips in general when trying to piece together a quality system affordably? I left the link out because I don't want to seem like I am endorsing anyone. Um, but Larry, honestly, this is kind of what I do. This is my main consultation business is doing designs for people and helping them source their components based on their specifications. So I know I don't know what you meant when you said medium-sized system, but what I did is I went to that link that you provided and I pulled a mid-tier system. So this is right smack in the middle of their price range, almost exactly in the middle. 
uh, and it's one of their top 10 selling or top 10 best sellers. Um, so in terms of being in the middle, this should be it. It's a, it's a bestseller for this company and it's right smack in the middle of their price range. So the system is a $23,989 system plus shipping, plus mounting and plus taxes. And here's what you get. You get two RS 6548 sine wave inverters, um, which gives you 13,000 watt split phase continuous output. Uh, and this inverter's got a two-year warranty. You get 24 400-watt monocrystalline solar panels. You get two Kong Elite Max uh, lithium batteries, a total of 38 kilowatt hours of capacity. You get a battery charger. You get two PV disconnect switches. You get four solar cables. Actually, you get eight, four 10-footers and four uh, 50-footers. So the idea being you'd run the 10-footers to the disconnect switch and the 50-footers out to the array. You've got some battery cables. You've got a bus bar. You've got some fuses. You've got uh, what they call guaranteed lifetime su customer support. So that's just marketing. Um, the reality is is that no none of these companies know if they're going to be in, in business next year. So guaranteeing you lifetime customer support is just not something that they're capable of doing. Um, the idea that if they were to go out of business, that some customer support dude is just going to work for free for the rest of your life, um, is kind of ridiculous, but let me give you some of the specs on this system. So this system will allow 250 volts DC max and 18 amps max per MPPT charge controller. And, uh, these batteries weigh about 600 pounds a piece. So each battery is 600 pounds. Uh, and they give you a range for the solar panel. So that tells me that, they have a bunch of solar panels, and they kind of pick and choose what they send out for the system. But I'm going to choose the best specifications that they had, and that was a 42-volt 42 42 uh, open current and 12-amp short circuit. Um, now, with those specs, that gives you five panels per string, and you get two strings per inverter, and you have two inverters. So that means maximum you can put 20 of these 24 panels on the system. That's 8,000 watts at nameplate. So 8,000 watts in most of the U.S. is going to generate about 11,255 kilowatt hours per year or about 30 kilowatt hours per day. Four months of the year, it's going to generate less than 30 kilowatt hours per day. Two months, it will generate about 30 kilowatt hours per day. And then the other six months, it's going to produce more than that. Now, this is paired with a 38 kilowatt hour battery bank. This means that for the majority of the year, the system is incapable of charging up a near-dead battery bank, even with no loads attached. So let's say that your system design is 80% of the battery bank represents your daily need. That's right at 30 kilowatt hours. So you're basically the same as your average production. Now let's say that half that usage is while the sun is out and the other half is when it's not, which honestly most people have their, their main loads when their system is not charging. So if you look at the actual uh, power curve for someone's house, typically the day or the time of the day when they're not charging their battery bank, um, you know, that's about 60 to 75 percent of their actual usage. And so let's just say that it's perfectly 50-50 using 15 kilowatt hours when it's generating and 15 kilowatt hours when it's not. That means that if you go to bed, you got 30 kilowatt hours in the system. It's you use 15 kilowatt hours until the next day when it starts generating. It generates 30 that day, 
which is the 15 that you need for your loads and 15 for the battery. So on a perfect day, it works. Now, it doesn't work for six months out of the year, but for the other six months, it works. The problem is, is what happens when you get a rainy day? If you get a rainy day, then that 30 kilowatts is probably going to go down to about 8 kilowatts. That means that when you go to bed, you only have about 8 kilowatts in the battery because you still had your 15 kilowatt of daily need. You generated 8. You had to use 7 from the battery that started at 15. That leaves you 8, which means you don't have enough battery reserve to get you through the night because you use 15 kilowatt hours at night. Okay. Now I know that's a lot of assumptions, but the point is, is that when I do a design for someone, I'm figuring out exactly what they need and I design the system either to their budget or to their specifications. And then I help them source the components. Now, if you came to me with a similar need and a $24,000 budget, I could build a system with 10% more battery capacity, 10% more solar input, the same output specs, better bus bars, better warranties, all the same safety switches, a better battery charger for over $4,000 less than that kit. And that system, instead of being maxed out, could be expanded by nearly 70% on the solar side. So in my fee for that's $900. If I do a full soup to nuts design for someone, it's 900 bucks. I walk you through the design. I walk you through where to get everything. I negotiate on your behalf with the folks that are selling this stuff. And then when you get it, I provide technical support. So if you're a DIYer, you are literally my target market. Um, I'm not saying that these kits are bad. I'm not saying that these folks that sell systems that are already pre-made are bad. I'm just saying that it almost never matches up with the way that the system is actually going to be used. And if you go through someone like me, I can almost always save you money. So again, in this system, I can build a way better system than that link you provided for $4,000 less. And on a $24,000 system, you know, that's a big chunk. And that's way less than what I would charge to to do it and provide the technical support myself. So I know that kind of sounds like a um, a commercial for me, but that's the answer to the question. If you want to do these systems yourself, you can go buy the kit and roll the dice and hope that you're getting everything that you need. And a lot of times you end up having to go buy four or five thousand dollars more worth of components to actually get everything to work together. Um, or you come to someone like me, I do all of that work for you and then hold your hand through the install process. So with that being said, thanks for getting the question in Larry. It's a good one. And, uh, you guys keep getting them questions into Jack and I'll keep getting them answered. So I'll just leave Sean to speak for himself there and have nothing to add because there ain't nothing about solar that I know that Sean doesn't know three times over. Now let's move on to my question. I had a question today from a person who found me on YouTube. I'm not sure if they listen to the podcast at all, but they'll probably listen today because I did get some feedback from, from them on a question that I had asked. So what they wanted to know about was raising bluegills for food, and I thought this is a good one. We haven't really talked about this in a while. Uh, this is the initial message, and I'll give the relevant additional information. I love your YouTube videos on water, gardening, and hydroponics. I'd be interested in raising bluegill and other native sunfish on my two and a half acres in California. wanted to find out if you think a person could successfully raise and spawn bluegill and other sunfish and raise them up for food-sized fish. If so, what type of size and depth of ponds would you have? Thank you, David Murphy. Uh, David, I'm going to do my best for you here. Uh, now, David emailed me back. I sent an email to him and said, Hey, 
uh, are you, you two acres? You could get a, an excavator and dig a really big hole and put in a you know, quarter acre, half acre pond, and this is easy. Is that what you mean? He said, no, it'll probably be like yours with stock tanks or pond liners and frame ponds or something because his property is terraced. Uh, and it's, it's just not really suited for putting in a pond proper like that. Okay, so what I'm going to say then right up front is I have successfully had panfish breed in my systems. But the systems you're dealing with are remarkably small compared to even a relatively small, you know, in-ground pond we would call a stock tank in Texas. Totally different from the ones you buy in the store. Though. You know, I'm talking 20, 30, 40 foot diameter, basically a hole. If you have clay soil and you're in good catchment area, you can dig a hole, pack it down, and you've got a pond. And in that situation, the problem you'll have with bluegills breeding, honestly, will be that you need to make a conscious effort to harvest enough of them so their growth doesn't stunt. And then the bigger the pond gets, uh, the more you can do, the more diversified your ecosystem, and you, you can't stop them from breeding. When you breed them in something like, you know, my biggest pond is 12 foot by 12 foot by about 4 foot deep. They are not going to successfully become generational. And the reason they're not going to isn't that they won't breed. I mean, you can do some things like if you want them to, uh, get, uh, get some buckets, uh, cut them in half would be one way to do it. But the better thing would they make these, they're very shallow. They're maybe a f uh, 8 to 10 inches deep, and they're designed for water gardens to plant water lilies in. And let them sit on the bottom, and the water lilies, you know, two or foot of water will come up to the surface and spread out from there. Uh, because you got a lined pond, you're not going to have a soil bottom for those uh, the, the, those water lilies to go in. That's what they're for. Something like that, fill it like halfway with gravel so the damn fish don't completely just knock all the gravel out of them. And your fish will, you know, spawn in there because bluegill need to make a depression to spawn in. They don't spawn like in pipes or tires or something like that uh, the way that something like a catfish does. Somehow they're doing it without having it provided to them in my pond. Sometimes I'll find green, baby green sunfish or something like that. What I don't find is fish that grow up because the bigger fish kill them and eat them. So you got to think about it this way. Here's an, another example. I have... Um, a fish tank in my garage, a 40-gallon breeder, so it's a pretty good-sized glass tank. In that tank, I had a whole bunch of my Neocardania shrimp, and I have the shrimp and the mosquito fish, the gambrosia, little minnows, coexisting in a ton of my systems outside that are much larger than that 40-gallon tank. Well, I put the gam some gambrosias in there. There ain't a there ain't a, a shrimp left in the confined space. The predation goes up. Okay, so when you take a, a, something that breeds prolifically like a bluegill and you put it in a twelve by twelve pond, that's like putting those minnows and those shrimp in a forty gallon breeder. A lot of your young fish are going to get consumed, tore up, beat up, and eaten. Um, so, what is the solution? 
the solution that I've come up with, and I think this is just a much easier solution, instead of trying to breed, I mean, when they breed, they breed. You know, you're just happy for it. I've got bull, uh, bullhead catfish breeding in one of my tanks. But again, uh, even with just larger bull, bull, uh, bullheads in there, and they are very protective parents for until they're not. And then their kid is anybody else's kid. They'll eat each other, right? Um, so if it happens, it happens. My thing is that almost anywhere you live in this country, somewhere within 30 minutes or less from your house, there's a pond you can fish in that is full of these things. And you, you can go out there with like a little number 12 hook with barb crushed on it and uh, you know, a couple pieces of uh, salted shrimp or some earthworms or whatever, and you can catch a bucket full of these things, and generally there's no limit on size or number. You can catch a bucket full of 50 to 100 of them in a couple hours. So what I tend to do is go to a place where I can catch a bunch of them easy. I look for a place where I'm going to find them maybe halfway grown, about halfway to the size that I want to harvest. I want to harvest a bluegill at, you know, a hand-sized bluegill, and I got pretty big hands, right? That's where you're going to get enough meat on them to make it worth harvesting. So, you know, you get them up to where they need maybe another year of growth on them, especially when you're going to feed them well when you bring them into your system, and you just keep bringing new generations of fish in. I find that for this application to be much better than trying to breed and reproduce them yourself. Uh, baby bluegills are also going to require a lot of plankton, when you talk in fry, they need a lot of plankton to eat. They're not going to be able to eat anything except things that you generally cannot see with your eyes. And when you're doing it in captivity, it's best to have green water, which we generally try to avoid in our systems. So you see how that all kind of plays together. So I would recommend harvesting them from the wild and then growing them out in your system now I also wanted to say something else and I say this every time I talk about my tanks and specifically the wood frame tanks even if you're going to take that approach make them as low to the ground as you can if you want them let's say a foot or two above ground because you like the idea of sitting on the side of them and looking at them that's a great idea do not build them the way that I did I hate the way that I had to build them. I only did that because I can't dig a hole. So even if it's terraced or whatever, if you're going to take up an 8x8 or a 10x10 or a 12x12 area to do a timber frame version with a liner, dig that hole 3-4 foot deep. And then you end up with 4 or 5 foot of depth because I do have some bowing, especially on my 12 footer, and I do have a feeling that some year it will fail. Eventually those the wood will begin to break down and fail and I won't be happy about it when it does but I accept like this was an experiment can this be done and I'm just going to tell you again even if you can't do big ponds you're going to do small garden ponds or whatever get everything as low as possible when you start setting up like throw in return in other words we're going to have a pump that's going to move water out of that pond up to something and flow back into that pond which if you can do it gives you a lot of opportunities for some other stuff that I'll leave you go through my channel to find out about um, then the lower the first pond the easier that is and if it gets high enough it's not even it's not even possible unless maybe like if you're terrorist that means maybe you have some elevation to work with 
But I, my my 12-footer around my gardens, I, I don't have any kind of throw and return because the top of the, the rail where I'd have to bring the water back to is about three foot up. And so avoid, like, don't copy my design here, not because I'm, like, jealous of it or something, because it's not a great design. It is an adaptive design for a situation where I wanted a pond more than I wanted to be perfect. So you can do it, but if you're doing it, make sure you're doing it for the same reason I am and minimize the above-grade portion of it as much as possible. With that, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. Today's item of the day at tspaz.com is the same one as yesterday. It's the Streamlight uh, 1L dual fuel tactical light. This is a light that uses both AA batteries and CR123s. I say both. It should be either or. is probably a better way. You don't need one of each to make it work. And that means that you have the ability to use the 12 gauge shot shell uh, uh, version of batteries, which is a double A. A double A, you know, Dave Canterbury used to say, a 12 gauge shells are in every, every, you know, hot house, smokehouse, and outhouse in America. You could find 12 gauge shotgun shells. That's how I feel about double A's. The lamps, uh, the, the lights, the, the, the lawn lights that they sell uh, at Walmart every year in the spring that ladies buy and stick in their yards with lit up little dragonflies or whatever on them. They use a rechargeable double A. They can be scavenged there. Most of your remote controls in your house are double or triple A. Uh, most of you have rechargeable double A's. It's good to standardize. The 123 has always been a better technology than the AA. That's why they invented it. It's specialized, expensive, and not available everywhere. So with this light, again, the Streamlight 1L AA, you can have either or. And I love that. And I have nothing against 123s. I just don't want to be locked into them. I've been carrying this light now for several weeks to trial it. Um, I love the MicroStream as well. That's the little itty-bitty one that takes a single AAA. Uh, but the, 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 the newer one is much more powerful. And I think both of them have a place. And I have a video in the write-up as well that shows a comparison of the two. shows you how the heck you get a light. right? How do you get a light to take both double and triple A's? Doesn't that just sound ridiculous? It's really not that hard. I show in the video how that works. Definitely check it out. And one thing I didn't say about this light yesterday, one of the things I really like about it is it's waterproof as, as the day is long. Uh, and part of that is because it does not have an adjustable beam. So some people don't like that. But generally, most of your lights that have an adjustable beam are not fully sealed, and they are subject to damage if they get too wet. So this is completely waterproof. I chucked it in the sink and it still worked. Anyway, with that, hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll be back next week with another episode. This is a short week because I missed Monday because it's on the road. I talked to my wife about it and we decided jointly I went to a four show a week format and if another day gets taken off, then it's a three-day week. Uh, I'm going to go spend a long weekend with my family. We're going to take the kids hiking tomorrow. I hope you guys enjoy your weekend. I know I will. I'll see you on Monday. We'll have a live episode uh, running on the YouTube channel on Monday like we normally do. Remember, you can always find the next upcoming live stream, unless the last one's still up like it is right now, at tspclive.com. Are they going to bail you out just run you around They said you should have a house the American way a Dollar down, a dollar a month and you never have to pay There's a better way
Revolution.